In the meantime, turn to Psalm 39. So, we need to find that roughly in the middle uh, of your Bible. And this is one of those unfamiliar uh, psalms um, that we don't go to very often. So, let's uh, turn to it and hear what it has to tell us. Um, As always, listen carefully as this is God's word. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord... For what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the Psalms again this morning to learn more about how to deal with our pain and our sorrow and our tears and how to pray about them. And Lord, this is hard. We don't like weeping. We don't like crying. We don't like it when tears come in waves. We would rather they just stop. And we have no idea how you're going to use them. So we question and complain rather than bring them to you in heartfelt prayer. So Lord, once again, teach us what to do. Teach us what to say. Teach us what to believe. Teach us how to pray. Build our faith, draw us near, and help us to learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through the psalm of David this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen and amen. So, I don't know how many of you have seen the uh, Christmas movie called The Holiday. It's pretty good. Yes, it can be a little cheesy at times. There are a few scenes to avoid. But one of my favorite parts is when Graham, who's played by Jude Law, has to explain himself to Amanda, who's played by Cameron Diaz. And Graham is bluntly honest with her right from the start. He finds out that she doesn't cry. And so he tells her, and his honesty reaches a new level, he says, I cry all the time. It happens to be the truth. A good book, a great film, a birthday card, I weep. 
I'm a major weeper. I like Graham. I'm a crier at times. After a long day, seeing something sad at the end of a great TV series, the last episode of Wallander left me a basket case. I'll let you go. But you have to watch the whole series, you, you know. But the uh, nearly every Inspector Gamache book, thankfully they also make me laugh, a sad movie like A Man Called Ova, all of it can cause the tears to flow. And I try to hide it, but everyone notices, and sometimes there's eye rolls. But usually, I don't feel comfortable crying in front of others. And I've noticed that people often apologize when they tear up too. Why are we ashamed of crying? How should we as Christians respond to it? When should we cry? And what does God say about weeping? He does have a few things to say. So I'm going to start this morning with a little theology of tears. And then we're going to get to our text for today. So the first thing as we learn is that tears reveal weakness. Tears reveal weakness. In our Western culture, we often consider crying uh, embarrassing, something to be avoided. All the boys of my generation were told, men don't cry, even though my dad did even more than me. It was easy to grow up feeling ashamed of my tears and wondering what was wrong with me. I was afraid that others would think I was weak and inadequate. And so I really appreciate that little video clip of the Red Sox legend David Ortiz who said, I'm not crying, my eyes are sweating. But our, often our problem with crying is that it exposes us. It uh, reveals our feelings. It forces us to be vulnerable and honest with someone else. And it requires humility as we, in fact, have to admit that we are weak and inadequate. How wonderful and counterintuitive that Christ's strength is displayed through the weakness of our tears. And so as Christians, we don't need to find our identity in having it uh, all together or proving that our lives are going great. The gospel frees us from that. Our worth and our righteousness have been granted to us in Christ who promises to use us in our weakness. Our very salvation depends on it, confessing um, our weaknesses and our sinfulness and our helplessness that we might receive his forgiveness and salvation. So tears might expose our weakness, but admitting weakness is exactly what we should be doing. Paul says we can even boast in our weakness, 2 Corinthians 12, but he, meaning Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Again, how wonderful and counterintuitive it is that Christ's strength could be displayed through a weakness that's revealed by our tears. That's the first thing. Second thing is that tears acknowledge brokenness. Tears acknowledge brokenness. Another reason our culture is so uncomfortable with crying as it points to the brokenness of the world. People want to believe, they like to believe that life is good, and we have t-shirts that say so. So there should be no need to cry. 
And there's, you can go on social media and see there's mantras and memes that tell you to how to get your act together and always look on the bright side. And sometimes they make fun of those who don't. And they make fun of those who can't. But the truth is, we don't always have our act together. Relationships do break down. People get sick. They get hurt, even die. And we suffer disappointment and rejection and loss in all kinds of ways. So, of course, there will be tears. And as God's children, we shouldn't be afraid to admit this world is full of suffering and sadness since it doesn't threaten our purpose and value. The book of Job taught us that. We can stare brokenness in the face and weep knowing that redemption and restoration will come. In the book of Thessalonians, discussing the death of Christians, the Apostle Paul assures us, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others uh, do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So unlike those who don't know Christ, we have real hope because of the resurrection. We don't have to pretend life is always great because we know that eventually it will be. And the Lord has promised that. Uh, One day, Revelation 21, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So our tears tears reveal our weaknesses. They acknowledge our brokenness. Last, most importantly, we learn that tears model Christ. Tears model Christ. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the New Testament. Now, he didn't cry because he was sinfully weak, but because he was human. His tears are a profound example to us. Approaching Jerusalem on a donkey in Luke 19, he wept over the city. He wept at the blindness of the people's rejection of him as the Messiah. Most famously, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, a powerful reminder that death is not the way it's supposed to be. We aren't supposed to gloss over death or to avoid that topic or pretend it's uh, natural and benign. Death is an enemy that Jesus came to defeat. And he wept over sin and death, and so should we. It is a good thing to weep over our sin. After all, it was our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. The Bible records countless times where God's people wept over their sin. After David sinned, he wrote Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. After Peter denied knowing Christ, when he realized what he had done, we read Matthew 26, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. Our sin should grieve us. It separates us from God and leads to death. But praise God, we don't have to weep forever. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
It's good to cry sometimes. It's even good to cry in church, as many of you do. I know, I get to watch you. It's a good thing when we worship alongside our brothers and sisters and allow the truth of the scripture to penetrate our hearts and emotions. Although, it's a little harder when you're the one doing the talking. We don't need to silence those who cry. Rather, we should wrap our arms around them and sometimes cry with them. There's no need to fix our tears. Most importantly, we should pray for them. Often when people are overcome with emotions, they can't even lift their head up. They need people to pray for them. Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. More than our sympathy and more than a listening ear, we can come with those who weep into the throne room of God, who is our great comforter, who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. And when we cry, we can comfort one another with the certain hope that we have in him, knowing that one day he will turn all of our mourning into dancing and our weeping into songs of joy. So that's a short theology of tears. Now it's time to turn to our text and see what God has to say about them. So open again to Psalm 39. We'll start with verses 1 through 6 and tears for life. Tears for life. I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with the muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. The Psalms give words for our feelings. And sometimes we're uncomfortable uh, with our feelings, especially the ones that are more negative. For the most part, we prefer happy to sad. So by and large, we want to deny the power and the depth and the darkness of our feelings. On the other hand, if you've been paying attention and secular world and our society today, many people see the discovery and the expression of their feelings as a good end in and of itself, regardless of what those feelings are. Once they discover their feelings, in a sense, they now bow to them. Those are my feelings. I have to go with my feelings. And feelings starts to trump everything else. So we have sort of two extremes. We have people who stuff their feelings and try to ignore them and deny them. And then we have people who uh, bow down to their feelings and exalt them. And I think the Psalms are teaching us here that on the one hand, it's dangerous to be overawed by our feelings, but on the other hand, it's also dangerous to be underaware of our feelings. And that's because the Psalms do neither. The Psalms don't tell us to deny our feelings or to vent our feelings. The Psalms tell us to pray our feelings. Pray your feelings. Bring them before God. Process them in prayer. 
And I think for most of us, that's a relatively recent discovery. So, so far in this Summer in the Psalms uh, series on prayer, we've looked at foolishness and anxiety and repentance. And this week, we're looking at pain, sorrow, and tears. So what do you do with your tears? Now, to fully understand the lessons of this psalm, we first have to know its author, and we do. It's King David. And we have to know the context, which we don't. Many commentators think this is when David is running from Saul and he's in fear for his life. Others think the context is based on Psalm 38, which comes right before David seems to be suffering physically and emotionally uh, due to his sin. But still others think it comes right after Psalm 51, where David is repented after having sinned with Bathsheba. And I lean towards the third view. It seems to best fit the text. Now, with the classic line, thou art the man, sort of a Shakespearean-sounding line, the prophet Nathan has just confronted David with his sin and is bringing judgment against him. We'll pick up the story in 2 Samuel 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So David's infant son, by his now wife Bathsheba, has been struck with an illness and he's dying. And David falls to the ground. What's he doing on the ground? Well, part of the reason, of course, is it's one of the many postures for prayer, and we're told that's what he's doing. He sought God. But that's not the only reason he's on the ground. It seems, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it seems he's on the ground because he has been crushed. This infant is going to die because of David's sin. And it feels like an unbearable burden. Sometimes the suffering and pain and grief of life are so great, it physically just crushes you to the ground. Have you ever been so struck with anguish, so sick with grief, that you literally couldn't stand up? That's where David is. So David wrote many psalms of lament, psalms of weeping in the midst of suffering. Psalm 39 is one of them. Look again at our text, verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. This is an intellectual curiosity, and he's asking what the end looks like. This is grief and lament. Let me know how fleeting I am. You have made my days a few hand breaths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. You need to hear the tears behind these words. All mankind stands as a mere breath. Man goes about as a shadow, for surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Now, if the context is coming right after Psalm 51, where David is repentant and is now pleading with the Lord, it's almost as if David is saying, my life for his, Lord. Take me instead. And to be honest, most parents understand that. 
For most parents, their kids' physical pain becomes their own emotional pain. Now, if you're like us, and they considered naming one of those rooms at the emergency room after you because you went there so often, you know what that's like to have no physical pain but have emotional pain because one of your children is lying there in pain. It breaks our hearts to see broken children. And David's son is about to die. Now, I have buried a few children. I have seen no pain greater than the loss of a child. Joanne and I have knelt by a bedside listening to a mom grieve, I want to die, I have to be with him. And it's my job to convince them to live. There's no greater pain. And that's where David is. He is weeping over his life. And he is weeping over the life of his dying son. And the conclusion of this humbling reflection is to realize that life is no more uh, solid and lasting than a shadow. He says, you've made my days a handbreadth. That's, that's a handbreadth. My lifetime is as nothing. All mankind stands as a mere breath. Man goes about as a shadow. One of the themes repeated in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, from Ecclesiastes 1, we read, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. All is vanity. Some translations use the word meaningless. David is using the same word here in Psalm 39. Three times, but our English translations translate it as breath in verses 5 and 11 and as nothing or for nothing in verses 5 and 6. And then man is referred to as a shadow, which is why C.S. Lewis famously called this world the shadow lands. If you don't think that your life is a shadow, think about how many years it will be before your name is forgotten. Do you remember your great grandfather's name? How about his father or mother? And unless they're really into genealogies, your great-grandchildren will probably not know your name. And the things you work hard to save up and pass on will go to people you do not know. David knows that his son is nothing, that he is a mere breath, and he is going about as a shadow. And the tears keep coming. But that's not all, because he also knows the source of these tears, that these are tears from God. Tears from God, verse 7-11. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Selah happens often in the Psalms. It's... uh, Partly a musical notation, as best as we can tell, it simply means pause. Wait. Be quiet for a moment. 
Now, back in 2 Samuel, Nathan has rebuked David by saying, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. That word scorned, he says you've utterly scorned the Lord, means to take God lightly. It's the opposite of kavod, the Hebrew word for glory. It's the antonym of kavod, the infinite importance and the weight of God's glory. Uh, literal translation of kavod is heavy. You may be familiar with uh, the C.S. Lewis essay, The Weight of Glory. It's about that word. And glory is when we sense um, God's reality, God's heaviness. And to take God lightly is to diminish God, to make God an abstraction, to not take God seriously. And what Nathan is saying to David is, you have and you have led others to treat God lightly. But look at what else Nathan says. You're not being punished. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The text is clear. You have been forgiven. You have repented. You have been forgiven. You are not going to be punished. There is no retribution for you. But your son will die. Over and over again, we're told, you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're pardoned, but you are going to suffer horribly. That shocks us. You're loved, you're forgiven, you're accepted, and you're going to suffer. Do you know how much the Bible hammers home that this is the way things are? Of course you know. We just finished the book of Job. You remember how Job felt? Job 7. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I lie on the earth. You will seek me, and I shall not be. David sounds a lot like Job. David and Job are saying the same thing. They're asking the same questions. David's mouth opens, pain pours out, and he's crying out, Oh Lord! And this is where we take our pain. We don't bury it. We don't let it lead to anger or outrage. We take our pain to the Lord, and he gives us clarity. He is not surprised or upset by our honesty. He already knows it, and when we're being faithful, we bring it to him, and he'll use it to give us new perspective. And that's what David does, and the Lord gives him new perspective about his suffering. Now, I don't agree with everything that Eugene Peterson has written. He's still one of my favorite uh, Christian authors. And he says up to this point in the story, that chapter after chapter, David has used everyone. Bathsheba is an object, Uriah is an obstruction, Joab is a tool. David is not a server of people, he's a user of people. But from this moment on, the rest of his life changes. David becomes a man who weeps. Listen to some other things David wrote. Psalm 6, 
I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Psalm 42, which you're going to hear from next week. My tears have been my food day and night. Psalm 56, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? With God, tears do not fall unnoticed. He sees them, grieves them, and holds them as if they're his own. The great singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson has a wonderful song called After the Last Tear Falls. I encourage you to listen to it, although it might bring about some tears. It has that sort of melancholy feel to it. But in the song he says, In the end, we'll see how the tears that have fallen were caught in the palms of the giver of love and the lover of all. And we'll look back on those tears as old tales. And that's because our tears are also tears of promise. So we have tears of life, tears from God, and tears of promise. Psalm 39 is one of the Psalms that tells us that David went through deep despair. (coughs) Excuse me. During his times of suffering. This psalm is unusual. It does not end on a note of joy. It does not even end on a note of hope. Most psalms end with, Lord, you know, I'm suffering, but let me see your face. This psalm says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. It's the end of the psalm. It's the end of the prayer. Get away from me so I can have a little peace before I die. That's a psalm? Where's the hope? I was struck by what Tim Keller wrote about this psalm. As you know, he passed away a few weeks ago. But listen to what he wrote. I want you to know this hopeless psalm has been one of the greatest comforts to me for years. Because it tells us a couple of things. First of all, the fact that it's included in the Bible shows God understands how we speak when we're desperate. It's not right to say, God, get away from me. It's not right, but he understands or it wouldn't be there. This psalm shows us God's compassion. He knows how we speak when we're weeping. The other thing we see here is the emotional realism is incredible. David doesn't paper over his feelings with pious platitudes. He never says, well, I know everything's going to work out. Not at all. And yet he never stops praying. He's complaining. He's saying, get away from me. But he's talking to God throughout all of his emotional trauma. This is a balance of emotional reality and intellectual humility. Reality and humility. When you look at David's psalm, the emotional reality is he does not say the right thing. He doesn't even feel the right thing, and he doesn't try to make himself feel the right thing. He just feels. That's Tim Keller. So good. David weeps, but he never stops praying. And when David became weary with moaning, God didn't become weary with listening. As God said to King Hezekiah, he could say to each one of us, 
2 Kings 20. Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. And he does. And then he gives us grace and peace and promises. To see that more clearly, we have to go back to David and Nathan, back to 2 Samuel. There he says, David says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So God gives David and us two words of grace here. Verse 22, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And verse 25, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So that's the two words of grace. And you have to have them. You have to have them. The first, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. You can't read this and say, okay, well, everybody believes infants went to God when they die. And when you die, if you're a believer, you go to God too. No, they didn't. They didn't believe that, and neither do we. There is no such thing by justification by youth alone. Rather, we believe that elect infants go to heaven. We believe those covenant promises we make every time we baptize an infant that the children of believers go to heaven. Psalm 102, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. And why does David have this comfort? Why is he able to get up and say, I shall go to him. He will not return to me. Remember, this is the same David who said, Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knows where he's going. And he says, I will go to him. God has assured David, I have accepted you. I have pardoned you. You are going to be with me forever, and your son will be with me, and therefore with you forever. And so David can get up off the ground. Now you might say, well, that's nice. He got that special word from God, but I don't have a word like that. God hasn't come and whispered to me in some unmistakable way that I'm loved and forgiven and accepted. Yes, he has. He has given you a sure word, a better word than David's. When God comes to David and says, redemption is not going forward unless your son dies, that's the only way I'll get you back. That is heartbreaking, but unlike any other religion, the God of the Bible doesn't ask anything he hasn't done himself. Only the God of the Bible has said, if redemption is going to go forward in my world, my son has to die. That's the only way I'm going to get my people back. When Christ came to earth and died on the cross to pay the debt for sin, that debt being separation from God, the ultimate agony for our soul, and on the cross the Father and Son experienced 
uh, infinite separation, the punishment he took on our behalf. Christ experienced untold agonies on the cross. No one ever lost a child like God lost a child. There's one more word of grace. We read, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah. This is truly amazing. Now, David's had many wives, many marriages, many children. And yet what God does is astounding. He gives them another child. And David names him Solomon, meaning I'm at peace. God says, I can do better than that. Name him Jedidiah, which means the Lord loves and delights in him. Of all the marriages, of all the children, this is the one through whom the Messiah comes into the world. This is the messianic seed of the woman going all the way back to Genesis 3. This is the one through whom the Christ will come. You know what that means? Bathsheba, the scarlet woman, David, who murdered in order to have her, God brings Jesus out of that. Terrible sins and waves of tears bring us the bearer of salvation. What does that mean? It means it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you are in Christ, you are Jedediah. The Lord loves and delights in you. Embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and no matter what you've done, he loves you. He delights in you. You're Jedediah. You understand? This means that King David, at some point, would have had to go into Bathsheba and said, Honey, we're going to have another child. And it's going to be one we're looking for, the one the whole world has been looking for. And I'm imagining the Bathsheba looked at David and said, Are you kidding? After all we've done? What kind of God would do that for us? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who. And so with David, we can say Psalm 116, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. And you can do that when you come to his table and then your tears will become the stuff of old tales. You need to pray. Take a moment, do that now, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, oh, God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to pray about our tears, to pray about our weeping, to pray about our sorrows. Far too often we try to hide our tears. We pretend they're not there. We look down instead of looking up. Teach us to look through our tears to you. Teach us that in Christ we are Jedediah. That regardless of our past, when we come to Christ, you delight in us. The Lord continue to work in each of our hearts this summer as we turn to the Psalms, as we learn about prayer, and draw us ever closer to the one who bore our sins, who paid our penalty, and who delights in us this day.
and our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.